Welcome to the Reformation Fellowship Podcast. Reformation Fellowship provides support and fellowship for all who would stand for the Reformation of Christ Church worldwide. We long to see the church revitalized by the gospel and seek to encourage all who share that vision. We gather together for gospel-hearted fellowship around gospel-minded theology. Welcome back to the Reformation Fellowship Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Schell, and today I will be talking with Paul House. He is professor of divinity at Beeson Divinity School with a focus in Old Testament. Uh, He's author of Old Testament theology, uh, of a few commentaries, and Bonhoeffer's seminary vision. Today we're going to be discussing what we can learn today about the fellowship and the community and uh, the reformation of Christ Church that gathered around Bonhoeffer during those pivotal years uh, leading up to and during the during World War II, and what we can learn today as gospel ministers who likewise want to see the reformation of Christ Church, uh, and, but but no, we can't do that alone. We need. Um, we need community, we need fellowship, we need encouragement, and we need partnership. So without further ado, let's jump into the conversation. Paul, thank you so much for joining us here on the Reformation Fellowship podcast today. I'm very happy to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. Well, for those of our listeners who may not be as familiar with, with, with you and your work, could you maybe begin us with uh, with just sharing a little bit about yourself. Yes, I, I teach at Beeson Divinity School at Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. I've been teaching in colleges and seminaries since 1986. Mm-hmm. I am mainly uh, teaching Old Testament and Hebrew, but I've also had a research interest in Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the Confessing Church. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Well, we're spending this season, as you know, uh, of the Reformation Fellowship podcast, looking at past and present examples of ministries, networks, friendships that helped foster the two words in our name, Reformation and Fellowship. And I'm excited to talk with you today about Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his, his circle of friends and partners in the Confessing Church, what they were hoping for as they launched into pastoral training, what they what we can learn from them today. So maybe we can start with uh, an introductory question. I I think many of us, when we think of Bonhoeffer, we think of him as a lone reed, standing strong alone for Christ in Germany. But there was uh, a fellowship, a community of partners banding together. Could you tell us a little bit about those others? Yes. And I think for someone with your name, with both Reformation Fellowship, this would fit Bonhoeffer and his friends very well Mm. because what they believed they were in the Confessing Church was a church renewal movement for lack, don't know about the term movement, but they wanted to renew the church. Mm. Uh, They wanted to do this, some of them, before Hitler came into power in January 1933. Uh, So it had been kind of a long deep-seated kind of wish for renewal of Reformation principles 
uh, the word of God, the lordship of Jesus Christ, um, and the kind of missions to their people and to the world that reflected the Reformation. Mm. And so Bonhoeffer has been portrayed in America as this kind of lone figure and this guy who stood for truth. And he did do that, and he did give his life for that. But he was hardly alone. Uh, when he came back to Germany from being a pastor in London between 1933 and 1935, he was called back to oversee uh, a seminary uh, training program, which was to be six months in length. It's part of their whole system as a capstone um, kind of event for students. Mm. His first group had 23 students. There were 181 uh, total students over the five-year period in which he did this work. He had very close associates. He had fellow pastors and also financial supporters who were mm. all part of this movement. So I think he is a person who would be sad that a lot of his friends have been forgotten, that a lot of his associates have been left out, that certainly the morning in April 1945, when he was um, executed, he was there by himself, but he, he had friends who had been supporting him and visiting him and helping him and family members who were to clear up to the end. So he's very much a collegial, communal kind of person who needed the support of other Christians. The pastors mm -hmm. of, the, of the confessing church called themselves brethren and a brotherhood, not a, not a group of competitors against one another, no mm -hmm. real hierarchy. The idea was fellowship and friendship and shared ministry. Yeah, that's wonderful. Could you maybe pick one or two of those uh, of the individuals that were part of that group and give us um, a, a mini bio? Well, yes. I mean, it's it's hard to pick because there's there's some great ones. The most the best known is Eberhard Beke, who was his biographer and friend, mm. who was. Um, one of the kind of associate directors of the seminary when there were two of them. Um, and Fritz Onosh was a lesser known person, but he was also like Baker working hand in hand with Bonhoeffer at uh, a seminary site. Both mm. those men were first students of Bonhoeffer's 1935. They stayed with him throughout the seminary work that ended in 1940. They remained friends with him, clear up to his death and Onash's death just a few days before Bonhoeffer's. Mm. Onash was murdered by Soviet soldiers uh, in the cellar below his church. And Baker, of course, survived the war and became Bonhoeffer's biographer. He says less about Onash because Onash was his brother-in-law and his sister had suffered greatly uh, her husband's um, murder and mm. subsequent difficulties. Yeah. So those were two who were just supported Bonhoeffer all the way through. Yeah. Another interesting person was a man named Albrecht Schoenherr, who was one of Bonhoeffer students in, in Berlin and then in uh, the seminary. He survived the war and became the leader of the church in East Germany after the war. 
And they, as leader of the church in East Germany, he put in practice a lot of Bonhoeffer's principles and a lot of the confessing church principles. And so really Bonhoeffer's legacy had greater impact in Eastern Germany as those people lived out under communist oppression till 1990, what it meant to be a believer uh, for others uh, mm. in the church. So that's just three. There were several, there were several women involved, like um, um, Mrs. Von Kleist, who was a financial contributor, mm -hmm. who really appreciated uh, the seminary. Uh, she was the grandmother of Bonhoeffer's fiance eventually. So this is, this is a pretty close-knit group yeah. of people who wanted the same thing and were really in this totalitarian state up against it, try to be Christians. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, thank you for sharing some of those stories. Uh, you've mentioned already that the, the seminary was um, six months. It was a, a capstone, I think is the word you used. Help us understand uh, both how it functioned in the training of, of pastors, but then Help us get a flavor for uh, what that sort of training, what that six months may have looked like. Yeah, it's, it's a very different system than what we're used to. Mm. So, for instance, Bonhoeffer, Baker, Onash, they all knew they wanted to be pastors before they went to university when they were 18. So during their teenage years, they were in a specialized program. Um so that they learned Greek and Hebrew in high school. Mm. Um, and they were already being uh, trained for ministry. A lot of ministers' sons went into ministry. So Baitka and Onosh were ministers' sons. Mm -hmm. Bonhoeffer was not. He had almost no church background whatsoever. Uh, Christian background through his mother and through prayers and Bible reading at home, but not any kind of local church experience to speak of whereas these yeah. two close friends of his had extensive church backgrounds with uncommon fathers who weren't just uh kind of uh religious managers but were faithful uh, pastors mm. and so you did went to university and studied for four years uh hardly ever at the same university the whole four years so that uh, Bonhoeffer and Onash started at Tübingen. Uh, Bonhoeffer then spent the rest of his time at Berlin, but Onash and Bacon moved around to different uh, parts of Germany to study with different people. Mm. And then at the end of the university time, you would take an examination, uh, the first examination, and it would be on Bible content and preaching and lots of different things. If you pass that, then you went into an internship at, uh, for about a year at, a, at one or more churches. Then um, at the end of that, if you were still a candidate in good standing, you would go to seminary for four to six months in which you would study theology in connection with preaching, pastoral uh, duties, and that sort of thing. Uh, then is now a lot of people who had been through the university system thought that the seminary then was just kind of 
silly and babyish. Bonhoeffer thought that that ought to be a really robust experience. You ought mm. to learn a lot. It ought to pull your theology, your biblical studies, your um, your pastoral care, your preaching. It should be pulling all that together mm-hmm. in community with other people who are going to be doing that in the future. Mm. So after that, then they would take their second exam, which proved that they had been learning and they'd be ordained. So for someone like Onash, uh, from high school through ordination, you're talking about almost 10 years. So it's a very serious and robust training. There mm-hmm. wasn't the idea that anybody could, with a Bible should be doing this. And the confessing church refused to cut corners. They they didn't make it faster because they needed more ministers or because they were in a crisis. Mm. So Bonhoeffer insisted that they, uh, he wanted them to live together. Not all seminaries did that. They would have, they had morning uh, prayer and devotions at the start of the day before anything else happened, because he said, you need to know, will you learn, will you live from the word of God? Is it the first thing you want in the day before you have your bread? So they did this before they had breakfast. And then they had their studies. He had an enforced rest and recreation time because he knew a lot of pastors didn't do that. Mm. They, this was in with their studies and all. And then at the nighttime, they ended with a worship service. So it was very personal, very together. And very much based on the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Um, Bonhoeffer would say things like God did not send a recorded, you know, a phonograph record. He sent his son. And so he was very, he grew up in a big family and was very serious about personal contact and sharing life together, which became the Mm -hmm. title of his book about this uh, seminary life. Uh, His his most famous book probably is Cost Discipleship, which the, the title was simply Following or Discipleship. And those were the New Testament lectures that he gave in 1935, 6, and 7. So that's what he was delivering to the students about what mm. it meant to be a Christian and a minister. Mm. So that was the kind of uh, study he had. At a, he had um, assistant directors, as I've mentioned about Bacon Onish, they would Onash, they would take on different Onash taught Old Testament. Baitka was very helpful with the singing. He was a great musician. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea was to have a brotherhood of pastors who would stand together, love one another, pray for one another, and stay in contact after they had mm-hmm. been together, that they'd be lifelong kind of supports for one another in as a means of church reform and renewal not dissimilar to what Calvin did in Geneva, frankly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, um, let's press in a little bit more to that um, and explore the, the relational, the fellowship aspects, both um, would love to hear um, what that may have looked like during that six months, but also you mentioned that they stayed in touch. They were, they stayed connected. What, what do we know about that um, 
that kind of those kinds of connections? Um, yes, besides uh, living in the same facility, sharing meals, worshiping together um, daily. Um, after they left, they were they were kept in contact by uh, letters sent from the seminary to all the prior seminarians. So the list grew over time. Mm -hmm. They had retreats for their cohort group or for their semester that came back so that Bonhoeffer's uh, lectures on temptation that have been published, that was at a retreat for uh, the first two classes, I think it was, who came back uh, in 1938 for mm. retreat. Um, they were sent out together on mission trips to churches. So they would know one another and meet pastors in other places. There were meetings back at the seminary and then also in other places in the church where they could come for reunion and discuss ministry issues. Mm. Um, they collected letters at specific places so people could read them as an archive to know how their friends were doing. Yeah. So the idea was to, to take, to use every, well, Bonhoeffer also and Bacon Onosh went out and visited people. They were mm. often in isolated small places because confessing church was not the majority. Mm -hmm. So it was this very intense, intentional, personal connection. You kind of, again, it reminds you of uh, the Apostle Paul writing mm. these greetings, sending letters to different people, uh, explaining how things were going. And Bonhoeffer, lesser known lectures on the pastoral epistles are very good along these lines, how we stay in touch and serve together. Yeah. Mm. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Uh, talk a little bit then about um, you, you mentioned at the very beginning of the conversation that they were working for reformation. And I, I think probably our listeners are, somewhat aware of World War II and um, uh, maybe a little bit of how the German church um, uh, came alongside of Hitler and, um, and, and then the confessing church needed to, to, uh, to come out of that. Could you give us a little bit of the, the history there? But then when they thought of bringing reform uh, what did that look like in that context? Yes, be before Hitler came to power, it had a lot to do with um, maintaining a Christian witness in a much more secular culture. The, we the Weimar Republic was much more secular than what they had been used to before. Lots more opportunities for people, but of course, uh, not as since the the, the, the government was trying to move away from tax-supported churches. Mm -hmm. And Hitler uh, has had the effect of uniting the people when he came to power because he was not the, the, the official head Hindenburg was. So here's Hindenburg, this very old leader, very old, staid, conservative, uh, Kaiser-type 
leader. Here's Hitler, uh, brand new, up to date, dealing with the most recent technology through the radio, flying in an airplane to political rallies. Um, everything that was up to date and modern to that point, when they came together, the country rejoiced initially because that meant we were united. Mm-hmm. And Hitler um, was happy to have state tax supported churches. So um, the German people had not been a united front before 1870. It's a very new country still. Mm-hmm. And so they're still trying to figure out how to be a country and how Christianity fits into that. And um, Hitler, then uh, there, there were two or three groups around this, as far as religion went. There were the, the German Christians who really wanted to be the state church and to incorporate Nazi principles into the Bible, the gospel. They wanted to get away from the Old Testament, and they also agreed with the uh, April 7th, 1933 Aryan Clause, which excluded Jewish people from civil service jobs, university posts, included churches. Mm. Um, Then there was a confessing church who said, we will not accept um, government oversight that we have not chosen Mm. so in one effort after the other uh hitler's government rarely hitler Hitler himself would would try different things first a bishop then a committee head then finally um a government office that was over the churches and the german christians always said yes but hope they would become the church uh, the official church, the confessing church wanted the, uh, the, the reformation principles, the confessions of the Lutheran and reformed churches. Uh, they wanted to have their own oversight and for a small, small number of them, that would be Bonhoeffer's people, Onosh, uh, Bacon, others, they would not accept the oversight of the government in part because of the Aryan Clause. Because, for instance, uh, Bonhoeffer's best friend at the time uh, was a Jewish person who was a Christian and a pastor. His brother-in-law was mm-hmm. a Jewish person. Uh, Onosh and others knew, knew Jewish people. So they said no to that all the way through. The big middle group were neut- called the neutrals. They accepted the tax money. They accepted the the leadership position. They said that they were spiritually with the confessing church and others, but they did not believe you needed to take these strict stands Mm. that the confessing church took. And then then finally a radical group within the confessing church took, which Bonhoeffer, Baitka, Onash, they were not quite mainstream confessing church people, if I put it, because they were considered finally too intractable on the issue of whether you cooperate and take um, uh, oversight from the Mm -hmm. government. At the end of the war, they were the ones now eventually who were seen by Americans 
as the good guys. And they also had the distinction of being the ones who never signed on to the anti-Jewish clauses. Mm -hmm. And so, but they, they were a very, they were a small number. Yeah. Um, and after the war, this is worth saying, uh, they got pretty discouraged because their viewpoint did not win. Mm. The idea that the confessing church then was predominant after the war is just simply false. Yeah. And so you, some of the interviews of these guys as very old men are touching. Um, you can find several of these interviews on the American Holocaust Museum site. And they had to hang on because in a way, after all they'd suffered and seen, the old system won. The West German church was linked with the government and was nationalistic. The East German church was persecuted. And after 1990, just kind of lumped back in with the West mm -hmm. German. So um, some of them were older. What remains of the confessing church? And they, they say with some sorrow, not much. Mm. What we had hoped happened really hasn't happened but they still stood by what they thought ought to have happened or ought to still happen. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I, I guess I want to say to anybody out there that um, it's not the size of the movement mm. or the marks of success that necessarily will show whether it's the right thing or not. Friends, we want to take just a moment out of our conversation to tell you about the upcoming Reformation Fellowship Conference in Atlanta, Georgia, November 11th through 12th. Our theme, the theme that we will gather around is the gospel, our hope, our banner. We want to come together, celebrate the gospel, unite around the gospel and be encouraged in the gospel. You will hear plenary addresses from Michael Reeves, Dane Ortland, Phil Riken, Jeff Norris. You will also select a track to participate in at the conference. There's a track for any Christian who just wants to go deeper in their faith. There's a track for pastors, a track for women, and a track for theologians and scholars. And the hope for these tracks is to grow you, to develop you wherever you're at in whatever way you're serving the church, but also to encourage you by connecting you with others in a similar place. Those tracks are each led by wonderful theologian leaders, and we're, we just know that you're going to be encouraged. So that is November 11th and 12th in Atlanta, Georgia, hosted by Perimeter Church. It will be the first Reformation Fellowship Conference in the U.S., and we will gather around the gospel, our hope, our banner. Everything you need to know, you can find at reffellowship.org. That's R-E-F-fellowship.org. We hope to see you there. So it seems like uh, a lot of the, the reform that perhaps needed to happen in Germany that may still need to happen in much of the German church um, ha has to do with um, with uh, dealing with what you might call syncretism of or a capitulation to 
um, the the wider culture and that that could include government that could include mm-hmm. even pre-war kind of the secularization of of the german culture and really just a loss of of the gospel the loss of um the bible as the word of god is that am i am i hearing that right yeah and i think bonhoeffer and onash would say um an unwillingness to take up the cross and follow Jesus, Mm. Um, a loss of the teachings of Jesus as much as anything else. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's a lot of cross-centered and Christ-centered talk today that is absolutely satisfied to leave the teachings of Jesus out of it. Mm. If it requires us to love our enemies, if it requires to take up our cross. Now, there are a lot of cross-bearing Christians, don't get me wrong. But Hitler didn't create nationalism. He just exploited it. Hmm. And uh, the historian John Lukash has written about how the 20th century, and I think on, um, has focused on nationalism. So like in the United States, the question would be, are, are you trying to use church renewal as an instrument of uh, helping America do well? Hmm. So I, I hear a lot of Christians that talk like that. So nationalism is the chief goal. How do we make the, the country do well economically, militarily, and so hmm. forth? Um. And how can the church help the nation be what it ought to be? Right. Um, I, I think that is a syncretism that the church had then and has now. I think um, that we have done pretty well holding out for the full truthfulness of Scripture. Maybe, and we profess the full sufficiency, but as for the actual day-to-day ethics of living like the scripture old testament gospels and paul and the other apostles taught i think our version of of the gospel may skip all that get to the cross and go to heaven Mm. and there was a lot of that in germany in the 1930s Mm. um, so that people could exploit Christians, and they might be real Christians, but if these real Christians are mainly interested in the greatness of Germany, well, you can exploit that to your own ends. Then figure in things like um, your career being on the line if you don't get the tax paying out of the the government, Or, or what if the government in the United States took away the tax break for the churches? made Mm -hmm. us pay taxes on our property, stuff like that. I I don't know how well we would do. Um, The persecuted Christians around the world who are, who are standing for Lord. So our our examples to us, Bonhoeffer and Onosh in particular kept stressing that the church has to be there for others. And one of the great uh, compliments paid to Onosh after his death is a friend who knew him very, very well. Another minister said, 
Fritz was always there for others. That meant his home, his money, his reputation, his help. And mm. that's the way Bonhoeffer strove to live as well. So yeah. I, I just wonder what it would look like if we really took um, what Bonhoeffer says the Gospels teach about living seriously. Mm. And he asked some very poignant questions before World War II started. What would happen if Christians said, you may have another war, but you can't count on us to kill one another? Mm. How many soldiers they would have had left in Christian mm. Europe? <laughs> mm. So these guys were taking the teachings of Jesus, the whole gospel into their context and taking it very seriously. Yeah. That's what they meant by church renewal. And again, it's more like Luther and Calvin having their lives on the line. But then also, I think what they dreamed of was a church that didn't then turn around and do what Luther and sometimes Calvin did. And that's hammer their enemies as hard as they ever got hammered. Yeah. So yeah. once, so I, I think Bonhoeffer's vision was of a church that was there for others and that did preach the gospel, but then showed people how to live for Christ in the culture. Yeah. I don't think we're doing as great a job of that as some other Christian friends of mine think, because I don't think being correct on a couple of issues like abortion and sexuality begins to touch the totality of the Christian life. I'm not saying we shouldn't be correct on those things. What I'm saying is job's hardly done then. Yeah. Mm. Well, that gets us um, to kind of the, the, the final question for us today. And, and that is what are some takeaways for us? You've mentioned uh, you, you've drawn some parallels between uh, Bonhoeffer's context. It's different, <laughs> but there are some parallels. Um, and ours today, uh, at least in the West. How can, whether it's an institution that's training gospel ministers, or it's um, an informal fellowship of pastors who are uh, trying to trying to bring reform to their, their city, their part, their part of the world. Um, what are some, some takeaways that, that we should be, we should be wrestling with, we should consider imp implementing, uh, we should at least uh, allow it to challenge us um, in, in the 21st century. Well, I think uh, in the two contexts you started with, um, a seminary and a fellowship group. The first thing I'd say is those, those should have more in common than they often do. Mm. It, it does sound like the six month seminary of Bonhoeffer <clears throat> would be more uh, like a pastoral residency program today. You're, you're together, you're in the church. Um, you're being serious about preparing for the church. Is that, in that, that way, yes. And I think he would add 
that there would need to be a theological, biblical, studious seriousness that's usually mm. lacking in those programs. Okay. Yeah. Because we still separate this thinking from doing this right. integration of Bible. So um, I don't know what kind of seminary your hearers are having. Uh, Beeson, we try to have a, a very different kind of thing that's more like of um, Bonhoeffer. And I know of other a few other places like this. But first of all, we don't believe you can do seminary education by online education where you don't know your teachers, you don't know the students, you don't have to ever touch another human being. Mm. Uh, so I, I know I'm radical in that, but I didn't used to be. That used to be understood that you don't train for, imper but for a very personal life by impersonal means. Mm. Also, most American uh, churches and seminaries do not take it, I don't know what percentage to give it, but are very far from being serious about what it takes to learn and be a minister for life than um, these people did. Mm -hmm. So... We're always talking about what we don't need. Well, you don't need Greek. You don't need Hebrew. You don't need to be in person. You don't need to have a studious attitude. What you need is a set of practices, I guess. Uh, they didn't buy that. Neither did the reformers. Um, that I can only say after nearly 50 years in ministry, including seminary work and all that, pastoral work and everything. I don't have all that I need yet. <laughs> so I don't yeah. know that I could tell a 25 year old, well, you won't be needing this. So we'll, mm -hmm. um, so I, I would say we, we need to take a serious approach to it. We need to give it our best and we need to understand that in an increasingly disconnected, impersonal world, the church cannot be that we are a family. Mm. And that's what we do best. So I guess um, that's a couple of things. But if I could, would you mind if I re read just a piece of one of Bonhoeffer's last letters on this subject? Please. This, yeah. this is from 1944. It's written to Eberhard Beitke. This letter was saved, like all the other letters from prison, by Baker, he turned him over to his wife. She prepared a canister and buried him in the yard of her parents next door to the Bonhoeffer home. And this is how some of these letters were preserved mm. after the war. But this Bonhoeffer at the, at the end, you know, of his writing, at the end of like August 1944, the church is a church only when it exists for others. To make a start, it should give away all its property to those in need. The clergy must live solely on the free will offerings of their congregations, or perhaps engage in some secular calling. The church must share in the secular problems of ordinary human life, not dominating, but helping and serving. It must tell men of every calling what it means to live in Christ, to exist for others. In particular, our own church will have to take the field against the vices of pride, power worship, envy, and marketing 
as the roots of all evil. Mm. It will have to speak of moderation, purity, trust, loyalty, constancy, patience, discipline, humility, contentment, and modesty. It must not underestimate the importance of human example, which has its origins in the humanity of Jesus and is so important in Paul's teaching. It is not abstract argument, but example that gives the word emphasis and power. Mm. I think of that a lot now when I try to think of what Bonhoeffer's example and Onash's example, Baitka's example, and all these other people that, that were part of this fellowship. I like to think of that when I think of people like yourself and other groups that are trying to do fellowship-oriented uh, work in an impersonal, um, was it one of his poems, Wendell Berry calls it the age of disincarnation. Mm. When I think of you all, I think of the example that you're trying to put flesh and bone on life on life kind of ministry. That's, that's what we're trying to do as best we can in our seminary. And I hope people are doing it in their churches and it may not be big and it may not look important, mm. but Bonhoeffer's ministry was so marginal in its time. It's hard to describe. I'll, I'll close with this illustration. You're, we share in common a friend, Scott Hafman. 2019, Scott and I went and visited all the Bonhoeffer Seminary sites. Mm -hmm. He speaks German, so that was going to be a big help. But once we were over in Pol once we were over in Poland, it was kind of just you know anybody's guess what we're going to find. Um, so we were driving out of one of the little towns. It was either Groschlonewitz or Sigurdshof, where Bonhoeffer had, had seminaries, and I mean, 100 people in one town, 400 in the other. We're in rural Pomerania. And we're heading out. Scott says, wow, I really see now what a marginal outfit the confessing church was. Mm. It's famous now. We know about it now. In its own day, um, it, it, was, it was pressed out of the center into the margins. And... Who would have thought mm. we might be talking about it today? Mm. So I don't know. I, I want to encourage my, my brothers and sisters in Christ who are in these doing the right thing in out of the way places or small operations or even large ones that Christ is doing his work. And as long as it's the proper reform reformation of the church, it'll endure whether we get to see it or not. Mm-hmm. So that's my, that's one of, that's about the fifth long sermon I've given since you started this interview. <laughs> well, uh, thank you for those sermons. And then this, this final one. Um, and thank you again for joining us on the podcast. I know I've enjoyed hearing and learning from, uh, from Bonhoeffer and his community. And uh, I think that our listeners will be, will be encouraged, challenged as well. So thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Reformation Fellowship Podcast. We pray that this time together has been a blessing to you. The Reformation Fellowship is a ministry of union. And so all that we do, we hope it helps you to delight in God, grow in Christ, serve the church, and bless the world. If that is your hope, that is your desire, then friends, welcome to the fellowship.